Building WA, brought to you by HIA, the podcast bringing you all the latest news and insight into the residential building industry right here in Western Australia. Welcome to another episode of the Building WA podcast brought to you by HIA, bringing you the latest from the residential building industry right across our state. It's been a chaotic start to the year in Perth and there's already been devastation for many residents. To bring you up to speed, here's the latest WA News. Residents whose homes were affected in the Wurraloo bushfire here in Perth are starting to return to their properties. A total of 86 homes were destroyed in the blaze, with firefighters managing to get the fire under control after working tirelessly in hot and windy conditions. WA Premier Mark McGowan described the damage as devastating and thanked the firefighters for all their efforts. The Lord Mayor's Distress Relief Fund has been activated to help victims of the bushfire. Perth businesses are returning to normal after a five-day lockdown following a hotel quarantine security guard testing positive for COVID-19. During the post-lockdown period, masks remain mandatory, which includes workers on building sites. Perth has recorded no new cases of community transmission. And the proposed Alco's amendments as part of the interim review will be a welcome change by the residential housing industry. The proposed amendments will allow more modern building methods to continue to meet the more conservative deemed to comply outcomes of the R codes, avoiding unnecessary planning applications for otherwise compliant homes. WA's planning reform agenda is assisting the residential building industry lead the charge on the post-COVID economic recovery. That's the latest WA News brought to you by HIA. As mentioned in the news there, the Wurraloo bushfire caused absolute devastation for many residents across Perth in the midst of a hard five-day lockdown. And as we near the end of another hot Perth summer, there's a lot you need to know about fire dangers around your home, how you can best prepare and what to do if you are returning to a fire-damaged property. To talk us through all the rules and regulations, what to do and more importantly, what not to do, is HIA's Assistant Director for Building and Planning, Aaron Sice. Aaron, let's let's start with homeowners who have begun the process in the last week or so returning to fire damaged properties. There's obviously a lot of hazards and a lot of things for them to be aware of. What, what are the main kind of things that they need to know about? I think one of the key elements is to first double check that it's actually safe to return. Uh, DFES have uh, the website emergency.wa.gov.au. You can check there. You can also check with your local government about whether it's actually safe to return or not. Just because the fire isn't in the area anymore does not necessarily mean that it's going to be okay to return. And that's a really important point to remember. It can often be very hard to just hold back and know that through such devastation that you can't get back there you have to take advice from the professionals, you have to take advice from emergency services, and you have to check with your local government as to whether it's okay or not to return. So once residents are given the green light to return to their, to their property, what do they need to know in terms of hazards? Obviously, some may be a bit more pa- apparent than others in terms of structural damage, but obviously there's a lot of hidden hazards as well. So can you tell us a bit about those and just how cautious you need to be? Yeah, so obviously number one is the bushfire actually swinging around due to the sea breeze becoming an easterly or vice versa. 
the other one is also electricity. Uh, we often think that just because a bushfires move through an area that all the electricity is being cut, it's not always the case. So not only do you have to check that all your electrical services are switched off, but you also have to check whether your PV cells or your solar cells and your solar hot water unit aren't continuing to create electricity because something could be damaged whereby they're creating electricity and you're climbing through uh, building debris and you might accidentally touch a live wire and they can become just as bad as uh, standard mains power. So that's probably the first thing I would think of. The other one, of course, is just the standard issues with climbing over or climbing through burnt remains. You don't know how safe a structure is. You weren't there watching those structural members burn. You don't, you don't know exactly what's good and what's not. The worst one, I think, though, is, is especially if you've had a shed or you're going through the remains of a shed, that's going to be really dangerous. So if you think about it, if you've got a pool, you could have pool chemicals, things like chlorine, things like hydrochloric acid. You're going to have things like oils, especially if you're in a rural area or a farm area. Even drums or old gas bottles that may have been empty but are now, you know, pressurized because of the heat. Um, these are all things that are incredibly dangerous and it's really important to stay clear of those areas. But of course, before you even think about entering a place like that, you should always damp down and make sure that you're masked up. You have no idea about whether the materials that that particular building was built from contain things like asbestos, which was really only fully removed from use in 2003. So you could be living in a mid-90s home that has some element of asbestos in it. And if it's, if it's been burnt and you kick up that dust, you breathe it in. It isn't destroyed by fire. That's really important to remember. So you need to damp everything down, not with anything high pressure, but just to make sure you might have like a little backpack with a, with a weed sprayer full of water. Just damp down as you go. That's going to be really important as well. In terms of protective gear, what's the bare minimum someone should be wearing? Is it a case of just a mask and, and gloves or, or does it need to be much more than that? You actually need a P2 filter, which typically comes with a, a, a full face mask or a half face mask to avoid inhaling some of those fibres and those chemicals. The other one, of course, is solid shoes and making sure that you've got covered hands. But I certainly wouldn't be going in there in your, in your pumps or your thongs or anything like that, or even your sneakers. You really want some pretty sturdy shoes to, to, to enter a site like that. And then on the other side of things, what are the kind of rules and restrictions for workers? We know that obviously it affected a lot of, a lot of trades in terms of working in bushfire affected areas, in areas when there was total fire bans. So what do you need to know in terms of what you can and can't do from a worker's perspective during these times? As a worker, you really want to follow the same rules and regulations as a returning homeowner. So one, double check that it is safe to return through emergency.wa.gov.au, through DFES themselves or through your local government. If you are a business owner or you run a team of contractors, you should be going out to site and checking that it's safe for them to work and ensure that they won't unnecessarily expose themselves to any risk undertaking any kind of work or repairs or remediation. Another interesting thing to think about as well is the use of power tools. Remember that just because a bushfire has been through doesn't mean it can't restart. So the use of power tools in a total bushfire ban actually needs permission from DFES. There's actually a fact sheet released by DFES 
for using power tools in a bushfire uh, prone area during a total fire ban. That is available on the DFS website, like I mentioned. But basically, you can look at that and you can Google that on the Bushfire Act 1954. It's section 24E to 24J. And those conditions have to be met and you need to put that with your application as well. So how much responsibility is on you know, supervisors and bosses in terms of whether workers can be on site, regardless if they've been given the okay or not, when can they kind of step in and, and say it's, it's safe enough to be working? If we're talking about a, a, a general cleanup of the surrounds, the felling of trees, etc., obviously there'd be checks and balances in place for people you know, undertaking that kind of work. But if you're sending people in to do partial demolition or you're sending people in to clear rubble or clear building debris, that's when you need to double check that it's actually going to be safe to do so. You need to go out and you need to assess that site properly because the last thing you want to do is expose your workers. We know there's a lot more talked about bushfires by the time summer comes around, but how can we make sure people are better you know, residents are better prepared all year round, what, what they can actually do to their property, no matter what month of the year it is, uh, to ensure when, when bushfires are a real threat, that, that they have protected their home as best possible. Yeah, it's funny you mention that, actually. Um, all year round is really the answer, because things that, uh, that, that can cause fire damage, such as overhanging tree branches and debris on the ground, etc., can also be dangers for storm damage as well so the, the two really play hand in hand you really should be keeping the ground around your home clear if you are in a bushfire area now that also includes gardens and landscaping shrubs low shrubs bushes small ornamental trees etc around your property they actually promote the spread of fire as well even though you think that you know oh, it's a it's a lush green plant or it's a it's a hydrangea and it's not a not a flax it will be fine it doesn't matter once it burns that's it it just wants to it wants to carry that flame across into the house so the further you can keep that fire away from the house the better off you'll be so if you are in the process of building a new home and in particular if you are building in in more of a bushfire prone area is there anything in the the kind of initial design process where you, where you can make certain decisions that are going to ensure you are better off in the case of an emergency like the bushfire we've seen recently? Yeah, there are. It, it's important to remember that uh, most of these areas also come with BAL ratings, which are bushfire attack level ratings. Now, that's a number that talks to how exposed you're going to be to a particular flame front. However, it's not just for new homes that you should be really thinking about. It's also if you've been living in an old home in an area like this as well. So some of the key takeaways, I think, from all the bushfire standards of construction over the years would be, one, if you are on a stump floor or an elevated floor, it's a really good idea to enclose your subfloor. Now, the reason for that is that it's actually not fire in a bushfire that can cause most of the damage. It's actually ember attack. And embers blow along the ground because they're quite heavy. And when they blow along the ground, they gather in small nooks and crannies both under your house and in the gaps in your cladding, around your windows. And if they're blowing up, they'll gather on the underside of your eaves, they'll gather in your gutters, and of course they can set, you know, evaporative air conditioner filters alight, etc. So 
enclosing your subfloor is actually a really good way to keep those embers from blowing underneath your house. Now, if you seal all the gaps in your external weatherboards or your external cladding around your windows, put your gutter guards in, make sure those gaps are ideally less than two millimeters, which is quite fine when you think about it. It stops those embers settling in those places and causing a fire or starting things to smolder when they really shouldn't be. Things like insulation, things like the paper on the back of your gyprock walls, all those little things, they all add up and, and it only takes one of those to, to start a house fire. HIA have a number of different information sheets on ways to protect your new home and your existing home and also what bushfire standard will be applicable to you depending on the version of National Construction Code that you're using. So all of those are really important to remember and you can visit hia.com.au forward slash information sheets and we can uh, assist with any questions you might have as well. Well, for further information about anything you've heard in this episode, please contact us at the Perth HIA office or jump onto our website, www.hia.com.au, for the latest news, statements, information sheets, event details, and much, much more. If you haven't already done so, please don't forget to like our Facebook group. Just search HIA Western Australia and request to join. Thanks for listening, and until next time, make sure you stay up to date, and most importantly, stay safe.